Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris Media, a network that connects you more deeply with the music you love. I'm a dad and a husband first, but out in the world, I'm a professional musician and a political junkie. For those that know me, this connection between politics and music is natural. So each week, I'll be speaking with top-notch political reporters, policy experts, and musicians about what's at stake in this seismic moment of cultural change. Being confined at home, I've been reminded about the power of connection with others, how we took it for granted, how we maintain it while staying isolated, and what it will look like in the future without handshakes or hugs. Connection grows out of shared experience. You might instantly connect with someone you just met because of a perspective or experience you have in common. Or grow connected with a friend or colleague as you share experiences over time. But what makes us feel connected to people we'll never meet? I recently spoke with Dr. Peter Wish, a psychologist and author who has advised campaigns for Congress and Senate and the presidency, about how candidates try to connect with voters and where they so often fail. His latest book, The Candidate's Seven Deadly Sins, details the biggest mistakes that candidates make when they're trying to connect emotionally with voters. He explains the forces that dissuade candidates from being their most authentic selves and why so few choose to project their most likable qualities to the voters whose support they need to win. Then we turn to the November elections and how Biden, Trump, and down-ticket candidates can offer the empathetic and optimistic messages that voters overwhelmingly want during a time of such suffering and uncertainty. We'll also discuss how Trump's narcissistic personality prevents him from being empathetic and why that actually endears him to many in his base. Finally, Dr. Wish shares who he believes is the most authentic politician today, and I respectfully disagree. Enjoy the show. Dr. Peter Wish, welcome to The Politics of Truth. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Dr. Wish, back in March, you released the book, The Candidate's Seven Deadly Sins, Using Emotional Optics to Turn Political Vices into Virtue. Now, I think it'd be great for our listeners to first get to know you a little bit, because I think that'll explain a lot about the book and the perspective from which you wrote it. I came to Florida from Massachusetts back in 1994 and uh, basically, you know, did a few charitable things and wasn't really involved in politics. And then in 2011, I got a call from somebody I had met and uh, had some relationship with who's the former ambassador to Italy and Australia. And he lives about 45 minutes north of me in Florida, and he invited me up for lunch. So I said, okay, I'm happy to come. And I went up there and came into a condominium with about four other people, none of whom I had ever seen before or knew. And we started the chat, and uh, little by little, we finally turned to this gentleman uh, and said to him, okay, you know, why are we here? (laughs) And he said, well, just wait a minute. And about five minutes later, the bell rang and it was Mitt Romney. And Mitt came in and he sat down with us all by himself. And he said, listen, he said, uh, Mel, Mel Sembler is his name, Ambassador Sembler. He said, has told me that you people can help me because I I think I want to run for president again. So I had really 
other than a few helping hands with a few candidates in Massachusetts, I had no real political experience. And Dr. Wish, you have a background as a psychologist. I'm a clinical psychologist. I uh, founded the first marital and sexual relations uh, Masters and Johnson type clinic in New England in 1971. I was a professor and uh, soon tired of teaching. So by the time I left Massachusetts, I had four offices and 30 therapists working for me and uh, had done quite a bit of media work and so forth. So that career was sort of launched and done. And I was looking for a way to reinvent myself because that's what I like to do. I don't want to spend my whole life doing one thing. So I said to my wife, I'm tired of everybody plugging their umbilical cord into me. And so I want to change things up a little bit. And I want to give back because I've been very fortunate and I want to give back to people and society. So our daughter went off to college. We picked up cold, blind. We didn't know anybody. And we moved to Sarasota, Florida, which my wife had chosen. So uh, we're back in, in Mel Sembler's condominium and in, in, um, sitting with Mitt Romney, who's now going to run for president. And we all signed on board right away. And so I went from zero to 60 overnight. I went from having no real political involvement to being on the National Campaign Finance Committee. Were you brought in as a psychologist or as a financial supporter? I was brought in as a fundraiser. By the time I had lived here several years, I, I, I like people and I've made a lot of contacts and networking and so forth. Plus, I had a lot of contacts around the country and I, they said to me, you'd be a perfect fit. I said, but I really have never raised money other than for charities, which not really much different. It's still having to reach out and touch people and uh, connect with them and network and, uh, and ask them for, for money for a good cause. So I started out on the National Campaign Finance Committee with a campaign in 2011. And little by little, I would work from seven in the morning till midnight on the phone, call calling. You know, it's, it's not an easy thing, but I didn't have, you know, as I said to a friend of mine who owns a major development, housing development company, I said, I'm not like you where I can call up a guy and say, hey, listen, by the way, I ordered uh, 30,000 windows from you you're going to write me a check for $50,000. It didn't work that way with me. I had really no way to do that. So everything I did was raising money from $5 to $10 till I worked myself up to raising $50,000 from some people. So you lived in Massachusetts when Mitt Romney was the governor of the state. No, no, he no, was not okay. governor. Gotcha. But I knew people who knew him. Gotcha. He was with Bain Capital and I knew some people and I knew his his right-hand man, uh, Bob White. And so it was sort of like I was familiar with Mitt and, you know, sort of being a Massachusetts Republican, being pretty socially moderate or liberal and fiscally conservative, he fit right into my wheelhouse as to philosophically and ideologically what I could support. So your book is about the way that political candidates can connect with our emotions and connect with us emotionally. So this is early in the 2012 campaign. You're just getting to know Mitt Romney. What were your early impressions about his ability to connect with you on a personal level? Mitt's a wonderful person, comes from a wonderful family. But as I got more and more involved and worked my way up into the inside of the campaign, 
by bundling more and more money, I was allowed to go to, to uh, retreats. I was invited to debates. So I really got to see the inside of the campaign. And as I did that, I began to notice some things that I said are not quite right. Number one, they were cocooning the candidate. They were overprotecting Mitt from being the real true person that he is. And none of the warmth traits that I saw and none of the strength traits that I saw in Mitt on a one-on-one basis were being projected in the campaign. The American people were looking at him as this rich, out-of-touch plutocrat, wooden, stiff person who couldn't relate to the common man. So I said, we need to do something about this. So I came to the campaign and I said, listen, the guy's not relatable. People don't like him. And likability is a critical factor in the success of any politician and campaign. You go right back to uh, all of the surveys that Gallup did all the way back to the 1932 when they first started doing surveys. And they found out that the number one common denominator for what made a the difference between whether a candidate won or lost was likability. And I said, he's not likable. He's likable in person, but he's not projecting any likability. He's remote, distant. So I said, something's wrong, and I, I think I can help. But the campaign, <laughs> you know, being the way they are, basically said to me, hey, you raise money and leave the driving to us. And so I made several recommendations, and I have them in the book. But Basically, what I came away with was that candidates, including Mitt, commit all these different campaign sins. And what it amounts to is, a mo- is campaign malpractice. When they could be relating better, they aren't. Because fundamentally, all of the research in political science, neuroscience, shows that people vote with their gut. They do not vote with their brain. So voting is an emotional decision, as are most of the decisions human beings make. And it's usually related to our survival and our needs. After the Mitt Romney documentary came out post-2012, and it revealed this, this warm man, this congenial man, did anyone from the campaign reach out to you and say, Dr. Wish, man, you kind of nailed it, because uh, it was a close election? Nobody. And their campaigns don't do that. They don't want to admit their errors. Campaigns are very incestuous things. People go from one campaign to the next. It's usually the same host of characters. They don't like to admit that they're wrong. They don't like to entertain new ideas. They don't like to have somebody come along who has a better mousetrap. So I had said to them, listen, let's take Mitt's good charitable deeds. Let's take all the good qualities about him and let's make a video and let's put it out there because these things are not being projected to the public. They don't know the real Mitt, what I call the inner Mitt. And the campaign manager, strategist, Stuart Stevens and Mitt had a mutual protection society going to protect Mitt from himself. In the Mormon religion, you're not supposed to brag about good deeds. You're not supposed to build your, pump yourself up and be self-centered or say, I'm this or I'm that. It's a very quiet modesty. Humility is critical. So Mitt had a disadvantage. Why he came out after the election was over is part of the mystery of the movie Mitt, which he held for two years, by the way. That was filmed, and he held it back from the public. So I sat down with one of the campaign strategists and I said, listen, this is what we should do. We'll make a movie. I've got a friend. 
up in Tampa, who's the largest maker of infomercials in the country, Kevin Harrington. He's been on Shark Tank and so I said, let me call Kevin. So I called Kevin. I said, listen, this is what we what my ideas are. I said, terrific idea. Let me get back to you. So he called me back two days later. He said, listen, this is what we're going to do. We're going to make an infomercial about all of Mitt's good charitable deeds and all the wonderful things that he's done over the years to help people. And by the way, Larry King has agreed to narrate this free. And I'm going to take this and I'm going to put it out on about a thousand television stations all over the country where my infomercials run and we'll get out the word. I said, fantastic. Here's the contact person at the campaign. Well, a week goes by, two, three weeks goes by. He finally calls me. He said, I'm pulling the plug. I said, why? He said, I've had five conversations with these people and they can't pull the trigger. They don't want to do it. They were afraid to do it. And I think the, the word came down from Mitt and the other people. No, no, we're not going to do this. So they lost a golden opportunity at that time to show the public how relatable and warm and generous this man was. So now fast forward to 2020, Mitt Romney again becomes a, a pivotal figure in our, in our national politics, but now as a senator from Utah and the foil, the Republican foil to the Republican president, Donald Trump, what has Mitt learned? What do you think Mitt learned in the years between 2012 when he was a candidate to 2016 when he was warning the uh, Republican establishment about Donald Trump? I think basically he lost his fear. And I think he sort of had gave himself permission at that point. And he said in one of the articles interviewing him, he said, listen, my future is basically over. <laughs> He said, I am, this is my last hurrah. I'm elected senator now. I have nothing to lose, okay? So I'm going to go ahead and reveal myself. Now, the reveal wasn't always taken that well by people because it was so different than the Romney that people had come accustomed to knowing over so many years. This was such a radical change for him. When the movie Myth came out, my God, here he was in boxing trunks in the ring with Evander Holyfield for charity running around and the announcer saying things like, you know, in the ring now is uh, at 168 pounds with uh, no wins, but one giant loss <laughs> is, <laughs> is Mitt Romney. And here he is sledding in the snow in Utah on a toboggan taped with duct tape. Here he is patting his wife on the bum with a little lighthearted. Uh, here he is ironing his shirts while they're still while he's still wearing it. I mean, this is so far removed from the campaign and the person that we saw on the campaign trail. It's it's human, right? It's human. These are the things we all do. Yes, it's the real Romney that we never ever got a taste of. Hey everybody, I know we don't get out like we used to, but I still like to have a close shave. I've tried every razor blade on the market and I finally found the best one for me and I think it'd be great for you as well. It's called Harry's Razor Blades. Have you heard of these? I'll tell you, the blade itself gives me the cleanest, closest shave I've ever had. And right now, for a limited time, listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com politics. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five blade razor with 
with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel and aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go when we finally get on the go again. Go to harrys.com politics to start shaving better today. All right. So Dr. Wish, I would love to focus in on some of the points you make in your book, but can we do it framing it in the midst of the 2020 campaign? And can we look at Donald Trump and Joe Biden and see where you think they're doing a great job and where you think they might be able to improve? Well, what I did in the book was to break down the sins into warmth and strength virtues and then say, what are the common sins that candidates commit, okay? And the first one was basically that candidates shouldn't be pessimistic. They have to be optimistic and forward-looking. Okay. Well, I think both candidates, sort of, we can check that box. I don't see any negativity coming out. Every Biden's talking about, let's unite the country. And Trump is saying very hopeful and optimistic things about when they get over the virus, we're going to rebuild the economy, you know. But wouldn't some argue that Trump's optimism is not based in any kind of scientific reality? Well, you know, that's a big controversy. You've got the scientists on the one hand saying, hey, this thing is real. This is dangerous. We're going to have a spike in the fall. And Trump tends to discount things. He tends to put a rosy picture on just about everything. And studies, interestingly enough, have shown that we'd rather have our candidates be overly optimistic and overly rosy than to be in any way pessimistic. So yes, he he's a denier. Yes, he tends to gloss over things. Yes, his rhetoric is really horrible, okay? But his over-optimism is in some ways more acceptable to people than him saying, you know, things are bad and, and uh, you know, this is not going to turn out well or or we're, we're going to have to stay shut down and so forth. He, he's trying to be as optimistic as he can, given the reality of the pandemic. So you have Joe Biden's, the way Joe Biden has been speaking throughout the pandemic has been a contrast, right? You can't have a greater contrast between Trump's kind of unfounded optimism as far as just saying, well, don't listen to the scientists, listen to me. I know it's my gut. And then you have Biden, who is compassionately seems to be saying, man, this is bad, but we're going to be okay. So you have two different kinds of. So what you're saying to me is on a psychological level, they both work. That's right. They both work. As long as you're optimistic as a candidate, that will work in your favor. So this is more about the gut than the mind. That's correct. It's always about the gut. Okay. What about being tentative or being decisive? Right. Well, the second sin is when you're too tentative. And that was Mitt Romney. That was Mitt Romney. He was uh, changing his positions. He was uh, flip-flopping. And that's that's a kiss of death. You cannot do that. John Kerry was the key example of that. Uh, You know, whichever way the wind blows. Flip-flopper. Flip-flopper. And that's how they branded him. And he kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And so when I work with candidates, they have to be decisive. They, They have to step up to the plate, make a decision, and usually stick to it. However, you still have to entertain the idea that you can change your mind given new facts. And that's part of being agile, which is one of the other virtues that people need 
you know, the inflexibility is is not good either. Is Donald Trump an agile candidate? Has he been an agile president? Not as much as I would have liked to have seen. Once he makes up his mind on things, it's very hard to dissuade him from his point of view. And that goes along with his character and the way he is. He more or less fits just about every diagnostic criteria that we have for narcissistic personality disorder. But, you know, narcissists tend to be very successful people and they're used to running the show and um, they don't like to listen to other people. And they really think they, you know, know more than everybody else in the room. You know, I know more than the generals and I know more than the scientists and I'm going to take this drug because I think it works and I'm going to do this and that. And so he's not as flexible as he could be. But he's a different kind of politician. We haven't seen a politician like this, I think, in our lifetime that has come along and just said, I'm going to do it my way and not your way and not D.C.'s way. And I'm just going to march to my own drum. And uh, he's been able to appeal to the base. His base has stayed very loyal to him because of his personality and the way he conducts himself. Right. Rarely going above 42 percent, rarely going below 42 percent. What does that pretend at this point with a pandemic, with people riding in the streets uh, here the spring before the election? How do you see him getting that, you know, if say he needs another four or five percent if he's at 42? How can a, a man like Donald Trump get that? extra 5% he needs. Yeah, well, he may not be able to. And remember back to the 2016 election, he basically pulled an inside straight in the Midwest, just enough to win the electoral college. He didn't win the popular vote. And he had just enough wins in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan that he he won by 70,000 votes and had just enough electoral votes that he's you know, squeezed her out, uh, even though she won the popular vote. So it's probably going to come down to something very similar this time, whereby he's got the base solidly behind him. But most elections are won in the margins. Most elections are won by the swing voters, the non-political affiliates, the independent voters, who don't really make up their mind till very late. And some of them made up their mind the last week in 2016, when Comey came out mm-hmm. with that Hillary email scandal, and you had just enough voters who said, I don't trust her, that they switched to Trump. And that put them over the top. So let's just briefly talk about candidate Hillary Clinton. She just barely lost the election in 2016. What was the one thing she could have done differently to have shored up an extra, you know, three percentage points and and probably a victory? She could have been less arrogant, more likable, and gone to Wisconsin. From arrogant to humble in Wisconsin. That's right. That's exactly right. Which she didn't even make one trip to because she didn't think she needed it, even though Bill Clinton told her that she was doing the wrong thing. She didn't want to listen to her own husband. And that was very bad because what it came down to, uh, Bob, was that people voted for the least unlikable candidate. They were both very, in fact, probably two of the most unlikable candidates that have ever run for the presidency. But to people, he was the least unlikable. He was the new kid on the block and he sold people on 
his ability to connect. He was a master at connecting with people. And he's got a lot of experience doing that. And she wasn't very warm. She wasn't very likable. And people saw his performance during the 2016 debates where he basically nicknamed and bulldozed 15 other candidates to get that nomination. And people said, it's time for change. We want somebody strong. You know, as I said in the book, he was like Robin Hood. But this time he rode out of the forest of Central Park (laughs) to ride in and say to these people, you know, the disenfranchised, the angry people who have been displaced in in all these Midwest states uh, by productivity and changes and were out of work and had to feed their families. And he wrote in, he said, listen, I'm not Mitt Romney, okay? I'm proud of my wealth. I'm proud of the money I made. And in fact, I know the swamp. I've been there. I know it well. I'm going to help you. I'm going to be the Robin Hood who takes from the rich and gives to you. And that sold people enough that they voted for him and he won the Electoral College. So here we are, uh, well, I think we're five or six months out from the election. I'm sure the Vegas odds, I haven't checked them today. I'm sure the odds are in Biden's favor as of today. What is his biggest Achilles going into November based on your manner of psychologically profiling what makes a successful candidate? Well, his inability to articulate, his inability to put two sentences together, his chronic gaffing. Wouldn't you argue that that Trump also has this articulation issue? Yes. Trump cannot articulate. He perseverates. He says the same thing over and over and over again. He keeps repeating himself. And no, he can't articulate unless he's reading a teleprompter or, I mean, he's not good on his feet. And neither one of them are good at articulation. I think in his day, Joe Biden was excellent at it, but he's showing some cognitive decline, and uh, that's going to hurt him. So then later on today, you get a call from the uh, Biden campaign. They want to bring you on. What advice would you give Joe Biden? How can he change that? That's a very good question because I know his coach, and and I've spoken to him about this. There's not much you can do except script him. Make sure he's on script, totally on message and on script, and not ad-libbing as much as possible, because that's where he gets himself into trouble and where he goes off script and he doesn't make sense and uh, he can't put his sentences together or articulate a point. So I think they're going to leave him in the basement as long as they can before they get him out on the campaign trail. And this is a perfect venue for him. Zoom, doing these virtual fundraisers. That way they can have scripts in front of them or they can coach them what to say and not to say. And But once he's out on the campaign trail and he's in a setting where he's got to, you know, debate Trump or something, well, it, that might be a real problem at that point. And that's where the public might start to feel, hey, there's some issues here and we don't feel safe having this guy represent us because he's not all there. So instead of 2016, where who was the, the least unlikable, 2020 may be a matter of who is the least, least safe. That's right. Exactly. And safety, by the way, is the bottom line. People vote with their gut because their survival is based on it. If you look at all the reasons why people vote for candidates, it's, hey, all the safety issues, health care, money in their pocket, 
jobs, security for themselves and their family. It's all about their survival. And that all stems back to our very, very primitive needs that go back to our limbic system. And that's what gets triggered. Even though we think it's rational choice, it's not. It's a gut choice. And so people are going to eventually end up with two ideas or two images in their head. Here's Donald Trump. He represents something familiar also to people. Don't forget, they know who he is by now. They may not like him. In fact, in 2016, many people held their nose when they voted for him because of his demeanor. They don't like his demeanor. They like his policies. And Joe Biden's basically a very likable person. He's Uncle Joe. He's the common man. He's the blue collar guy. He's he appeals to a lot of people. But people are worried about his person and his policies because he's been moving far to the left because people have been telling him, well, you know, these Bernie Sanders voters won't vote for you if you don't do this. Then he puts these committees together where he puts a lot of progressives on there. And that begins to worry people as to whether is he really going to be the person in charge here. That's why everybody's looking to the vice presidential nomination and seeing what he does. And so he said he's going to choose a woman as his vice president. Who out there, based on your knowledge, could pull in more voters and unify the Democratic Party so it can be a big tent? Well, originally, back way back, I predicted a Biden-Klobuchar ticket. That was my original thought. And Klobuchar, basically because she has a lot of experience, she's from the Midwest, She's from Minnesota. He needs the Midwest. She needs the Midwest. Biden needs the Midwest to cut Trump off at the pass and prevent him from getting those electoral votes. But now that you've got all the problems in Minneapolis, now that you've got all the problems with her having been the prosecutor in that district that let some of these policemen off on when they were charged with certain offenses, there's going to be some pushback. So I don't know. I mean, it's up for grabs now whether she's still a viable candidate. President Trump has often been accused, you know, given his response to Charlottesville. And then there's many other examples saying that African-Americans uh, came from S-hole countries and on and on and on. If Joe Biden picks an African-American woman to be his vice presidential candidate, how does that trigger Donald Trump psychologically? Does that make him appear more racist or more racially divisive? Or does that make him court African-Americans uh, in a way he hasn't done to this point? Well, he's been courting them all along. In fact, he goes out and says, listen, since I became president, the African-American unemployment rate is the lowest that's ever been in history. I've put a lot of people back to work. I've given them opportunity. But you have a very valid point. If Biden names an African-American as his vice president, I think you will see more trumped up racism. I, I, I predict you, but it'll be subtle, but it will be there. And as you see with, you know, illegal immigration and so forth, I think that he will somehow get the message across to voters that you should worry about this in some way, that this is not a good ticket. And uh, how he'll do it, I don't know, but, but I predict that it will be done. We lost 100,000 of our fellow citizens just the past few months. Something I've been thinking about a lot lately is how presidents from both parties going back as long as we can remember have been what we say the consoler in chief. They found a way to bring us all together and help us mourn together 
and bear witness to tragedy and suffering together. This president has has not done that. His efforts have fallen flat. I think it goes back to a lot of these things you point out in your book, from arrogant to humble, from cerebral to empathetic. He doesn't seem to echo a lot of empathy. So how do you see psychologically for the body politic of America and for our citizenry, how are we able to mourn this loss and to suffer these really heavy times without that leader to lead us in a, in a compassionate, empathetic way? I think your point is so well taken. FDR was the quintessential person who was able to do this. He had these fireside chats on the radio where he talked about issues of the day. He appealed to people's patriotism, where he would often play the Star Spangled Banner at the end of every radio spot that he did. He spoke directly to the people. He connected with them. Ronald Reagan was also a connector. He was able to bring people together. He came into office, don't forget, following Jimmy Carter's several years of what was called malaise, okay, Mm -hmm. where Carter blamed the country for all the things that had happened instead of building people up and and telling them they were good and and, uh, that it was really D.C. that was the problem. So Trump, I don't think Trump has the, the empathic ability to do that. I really don't. I think he's going to go on his way trying to institute programs, PPE, all of the things that are being done now to help people out financially. He's a person who he's more of a doer than a feeler. Biden, I think, is more of a feeler. And so I think what you're going to do is see more of the channeling of Barack Obama, who really dripped with charisma and had an ability to be very ministerial in his approach to uniting people and bringing them together. I don't see Trump as that kind of president where he can go out and get on television from the Oval Office and give the kind of compassioned feeling speech that he needs to. What he really needs to do is to appeal to the country and to the African-American community by getting several ministers together and going out and traveling around the country and speaking to large groups in churches where they pray and where people will hear him and where the ministers are there with him, sort of saying, here, we're supporting this guy. He's, he's, uh, he really can feel for you. I think that people just look at Donald Trump and say he doesn't have the feelings for me that I need. Because what came out of the post-Romney election, when they do the Mm post-mortems, was the number one finding of why Mitt Romney lost, doesn't understand somebody like me. And I think people say that about Donald Trump. At least the non-base says that about him. And Joe Biden needs to project that, most importantly, I understand you. I feel for you. I'm there for you. One last, last question. Are there any senators or congressmen and women out there that you look at them as politicians and you say, hey, this man or woman's got it. Everything I talk about in my book, this man or woman is the best at this, at connecting with people on an emotional level. Kind of like who's sitting on the bench? Who's in the next generation that we're going to look at in four years or eight years and someone who's really going to be able to emotionally connect with the American people? Well, you're talking really about authenticity and somebody who's really there and transparent and feels and so forth. 
Marco Rubio is one person that I would say I've worked with Marco uh, on his campaigns as a fundraiser and and uh, I know him well and I know his heart and I know he's gifted in this way and he does feel and he is empathic as far as other candidates I mean they have bits and pieces of all of these but I don't think anybody has all of the ingredients that all seven virtues I think they probably could if coached correctly but Marco stands out to me as somebody who really is a very likable person. He may be likable, but for me, he raises this larger question that in the age of Trump, you've had a lot of Republican congressmen and senators really look emasculated in following Trump or in justifying his tweets or justifying some of the ridiculous things he says in public. And Marco Rubio has been one of those people who have maybe challenged the president occasionally, but he will, he'll back up the president in some of his ridiculousness. In the period after Trump leaves office, how does he prove to the American people that I'm authentic now. Yeah, that guy was crazy. I supported him. He was my president because he was a Republican. How does Marco Rubio kind of rehabilitate for a broader electorate who he really can be and who he really is? Good question. The public has a short memory, okay? Public forgets very quickly. And I don't know who's going to come on the scene. There might be somebody else that comes on the scene. Uh, they thought it was Beto O'Rourke, and he flamed out quickly. Sure. He's a guy, very authentic, uh, had a different way of doing things. Uh, you know, you've got AOC. People think she's very authentic and so forth. Existing politicians in Washington know the game. It's a game. And they get behind the president because they know that that's where they can get the most mileage. They have to still, don't forget, represent their state. They still have to bring back the projects and the money for their state. And if you're on the outs with the president, that's not a good thing. You really have to kiss up in many ways and make sure you don't alienate the person and be on the wrong side. They've all done that. I mean, Ted Cruz fought him tooth and nail, and now he did. he's on his side. Rand Paul fought him tooth and nail, and now he's on his side. Uh, so they, a lot of them have fallen in line because they know where the power is, and you have to keep feeding the power. What they do when president is no longer the president and somebody else is there, well, that's when they can cut their own path and uh, do their own thing. And uh, the people forget. I don't think people remember. Well, Marco supported him on this bill. Most people don't. They look at the candidate personally. Dr. Wish, I have a friend. He's a Christian philosopher, James K.A. Smith, up there at, at Calvin College in Michigan. And he's written a lot of books about St. Augustine. And he says that uh, we are not heads on sticks. We are hearts on the run. And your book kind of proves that once again, that, that we live here in the gut and in, in our hearts. And um, it doesn't matter what common sense may or may not tell us. Thank you so much, Dr. Uh, Wish, for being my guest. Once again, your book is The Candidate's Seven Deadly Sins, Using Emotional Optics to Turn Political Vices into Virtues. And I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you for being Thank here. Thank you. You can get it on, uh, it's in Audible, it's in Kindle, it's in uh, paperback, hardback at Amazon.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thank you. It was terrific.
Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media. Produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton. Artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit osirispod.com.